A great declaration of truth, a great promise. Christ is ours forevermore. I hope that you do have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 15. Uh, We will be looking at that passage in some depth. It's a very brief historical account, but before we look at that, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Why are we going back to Exodus to read a passage of Scripture? Well, as Paul told the church at Corinth, there's some things that we learn from their experience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes to the, to the, writing to the church at Corinth says, Listen, there's some things you, know, you need to know. There's some things I, want you to be a, uh, I don't want you to be unaware of. I want you to be aware of, brothers. And that is, and he looks back at Israel's history. Our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses, immersed into Moses, in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink for... They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown. They were not victorious. This is defeat. This is failure on their part. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place for us, as an example to us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Listen, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by by the destroyer, capital D, the adversary, the enemy. Now, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for a specific reason. They were written down for you and for me, for our instruction. As believers today, looking at their experiences that we may gain from their experiences, they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, and here's the warning, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. Be careful. Caution, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and just. And he will not let you be tempted beyond which you are able, beyond your ability, but will with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it, that you may be able to stand firm. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time that we have together this morning to open your word, to listen to your Holy Spirit. And I pray that that will be the reality of what takes place here, that you will speak, that you will speak to our hearts, that you will speak to our minds, that you will give us understanding, that we will learn not only truths, just propositional truths, but, Father, that we will, you will apply these truths to our life and our heart and the situations that we live in and that we walk in today. It is Thanksgiving season in this country. We celebrate that at a specific time of year, but... As believers, we're called to be thankful all the time, and I pray that you will cultivate in us an attitude, a character of gratefulness to you consistently day in, day out, as we put our trust in you and as we depend upon you. This morning, we're going to look at an example, an example of a failure in many ways, and yet a needful one, and an example of your provision and how you use this in the life of these, your children And I pray, Father, that we will learn from this example and be able to put these truths and apply them in our own hearts and in our own lives. In your name, I ask these things. Amen. 
Now, the story that we're uh, talking about is the story of the first real trial for the children of Israel after they crossed the Red Sea. Most of us are very familiar with the account of how the Israelites, God's children, Abraham's descendants, had been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years, about 430 years enslaved in Egypt. Think about that now for a minute. Generation after generation, parent to child to grandchild to great-grandchild, and now some 400 years later, having been born into this culture, been born into this society, been born into bondage, been born into slavery and a burden, They've forgotten a lot of things, but they haven't forgotten the promises of God, and they haven't forgotten God, and they cry out to God, and they say, God, send us a deliverer. God, set us free. God, come and rescue us, and God answered their prayer. He did it in a way that we might not would have. He did it in his way. He raised up a man. He raised up a man named Moses, and he commissioned him. He equipped him. He surrounded him with support, and he sent him off to Egypt. And there, Moses confronted Pharaoh. You guys will remember the story of the ten, ten plagues? Yes? When we hear about none of these diseases in Exodus chapter 15, he's talking about the plagues that were visited upon Egypt. And so, at the end of the ten plagues, finally the last one was the worst one, the heartbreaking one, the death of the firstborn in every family. And only those escaped were those who put their trust in God and obeyed Him. Those who put their trust in the blood of the lamb that they obediently painted over the doorpost. And after that tenth plague, Pharaoh's heart was broken. Israel all wept and Egypt all wept and wailed and Israel were released. And so Moses and and the Israelites are able to leave. Now this was not a refugee situation. This was not family by family at night trying to cross the border. This is two nations dividing This is a a whole nation, a million people coming and going out, over a million people coming and leaving, and they gather up their possessions and their belongings, but they also gather up some of the Egyptians' possessions and belongings with blessing, and certainly under God's command, and they depart. And as they head out from Egypt, they head out toward the wilderness of Shur, and there they come to the Red Sea. Meanwhile, Pharaoh has changed his mind. Pharaoh's heart has been hardened. Pharaoh determines in his heart in Exodus 14.9, the Egyptians pursued them, all the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea at Pi-Hahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. And so they're overtaken. Here comes Pharaoh's army. What are they going to do? How are they going to get out? How are they going to escape? They've got the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They've got the sea on one side, Pharaoh's army on the other side, and they cry out, and as Stephen mentioned, they complained, and God gave Moses instructions, and Moses stretched out his rod at God's command, and by God's power, God parted the Red Sea, and they crossed on dry ground. And as they crossed on dry ground, the Egyptian army begins to follow them, and God released the waters of the Red Sea, and it drowns, and it defeats the Egyptian army, their horsemen, their chariots, their soldiers. They're all drowned in the sea, and Israel is given a great victory. Would you be glad about that if you were them? Would you find it easy to have Thanksgiving? They did. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 15, what a great song of praise. Moses led the people, and they began to sing. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. His horse and his rider has been 
the horse and rider has been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise Him. My Father's God. I will exalt Him. Chorus after chorus, song after song, singing and dancing. I want you to know the, the, the big transition from the Israelites in slavery in Egypt to now being set free by the power of Almighty God. Great time of celebration, right? And then we come to our text today. And what a transition. What a transition. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, M-A-R-A-H, Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. And that's why they called it Marah. Marah means bitter. It's the same root word as the name Mary. And I want to pause right there. And I want to caution us because what I hear preachers doing and what I read commentators doing is they say, these, these foolish, foolish, foolish Israelites, they just had seen the power of God and they're three days in the and just three, I couldn't be faithful for three days. And it seems like at least, I'm not excusing them, they, they were tested and failed the test. But it seems like we belittle the trial that they faced. This is their first trial after the Red Sea, first one. As a nation under the leadership of Moses completely dependent upon God, it's their first trial. And in Egypt, there is water aplenty. There is the river Nile. There are wells. There are cisterns. They, they were not thirsty due to lack of water in Egypt. So they are facing a challenge that they've never faced before. You ever been there? They are facing a situation that they've never faced before. And it's serious. No water, no life. You need water. And, and get the, here, get, imagine this with me, if you will. You're traveling on foot. Pick a trail. We can do the Foothills Trail, Appalachian Trail. Or you're walking loops around Conesty Park. And you get up early in the morning and you're traveling on foot and the sun is shining. You're in a wilderness. The wilderness sun and it's hot. And you have your... You're traveling and there's no water. But not only are you traveling, but you've got your wife and you've got your kids. As a matter of fact, let's go further than that. You've got your in-laws and your cousins. And the people next door and the people next door to them, there are a million of you walking down this trail. And there's no water. And you get through the morning and you think, well, maybe you know, there'll be water coming along. Maybe we'll have some rain, some water will come. You get to the end of the first day. And the babies are crying. The animals are complaining. Nobody's really happy, but it's just one day. As uncomfortable as it is, it's just one day. And then day two comes, and you wake up with hope. Surely today we'll find water. And you set out, you pick up your burdens, you pack up your belongings, you round up your livestock, and you begin to walk across the wilderness. And there's no water. And all day long, you're looking at the horizon. Hopefully, there'll be an oasis somewhere. Just look for the palm trees. Look for the lake. Look for the river. Look for the stream. Look for the fountain. Where's the water? And you make it through the day. You get through the evening. And you think, well, we might not make it. It's our first time out of Egypt. It's our first time across the wilderness and as a nation. It's our first time out here. And this is nigh on unbearable. We are thirsty. 
But not only are we thirsty, we're in danger of our lives. We're in danger. The baby's in danger. The lambs, the sheep, the goats, the oxen, they are in danger. And you wake up on day three and you begin to walk and you begin to walk and you begin to walk and you begin to lose hope and you begin to complain. As a matter of fact, I will tell you that others have already been complaining and you've been listening to them and now it's become your turn. And then all of a sudden there's water. Look, there's water. There are trees in the distance. Trees mean water. And I can imagine them picking up their step and I can imagine them getting a little bit excited. All right, here's an opportunity for us. Here's water. There's going to be relief. And they get there and the animals that rush to the water first sniff it and back away. And the leaders who have the responsibility to test and make sure everything is okay begin to test the water, and the water is poison. It may not kill you. It will make you sick. It will make your livestock sick. The water is bitter. It's not drinkable. Talking about hopes up and hopes dashed, would you complain? Don't belittle their suffering. If I can just make a little point here. A lot of us who have been Christians for a while and a lot of us who have life experiences for a while, we hear someone complaining about things that we think are insignificant and we belittle the suffering that they're going through. Can I caution you that everyone's problems to them at that point in time are real and legitimate problems. An eight-year-old's problems are as real to that eight-year-old as yours are to you. A 21-year-old's problems are as real to that 21-year-old as yours are to you. A 50-year-old's problems are as real to that 50-year-old as yours are to you. Don't belittle someone's problems, but here's the good news. You can celebrate with them as they go through the trials. As a matter of fact, the first point on our listening guide is simply that we will go through tests. Now, I feel like I say this almost every week. But honestly, I feel like I have to say it almost every week because I'm going through a test or you're going through a test or we're reading a scripture and someone is going through a test. Here's the first thing that we need to grasp and be prepared for. Yes, we have been delivered and yes, we have been saved and yes, we have been made new. But that does not mean that we're promised a life of ease or that we're not going to have any problems or any difficulties. We are going to face tests. It's important that we understand that. And I want to just give another little statement here. Often, our greatest trials follow our greatest victories. Often, our greatest trials follow our greatest victories. I found this so true in my life. I will learn a truth and God will teach me something to experience that I hadn't known. And I will rejoice and I will celebrate and it will be a time of singing. And a time of celebration and a time of praise. And then the next day, sometimes not even the next day. Something happens, I don't want to happen. There's a a struggle here or a problem there. A situation arises that is unexpected and that is unwelcome. And you almost get a sense of betrayal. God, God, didn't I just have that great quiet time? God, didn't I just learn that great truth in Scripture? God, didn't we just sing that song? And we sang of your faithfulness. What's going on now? It's almost a sense of betrayal. Like, God, you aren't paying attention. If you were paying attention, you could remove this problem. And of course, God can remove the problem. But I will let you know that in the sovereignty of God, in the providence of God, often He places the problem in place and He does it for our benefit. He does it for our good. We'll get to that more in just a a moment. But I want you to understand that the reason that sometimes our greatest trials and our greatest failures follow our greatest victories is because victories can produce one of two things. It can produce pride can produce pride 
Lord, I prayed about this. And you answered that prayer. I must be a really good prayer. Lord, I asked for this, and you did this. I must really have your ear. Or, Lord, I prayed for effectiveness in this ministry, and you get through, and God used the ministry, and all of a sudden you begin to congratulate yourself, not God. Or, God, I'm asking for a gift or for you to reveal a gift that I can use in, in your service, in your church, to build up your body. And God does, and God uses you in a remarkable way. And somehow, somehow, you begin to take credit for that which God has done. And it makes you vulnerable for the next struggle, the next trial, the next step in the wilderness, the next thirst. But there's another problem that can come with great victories, and it's the problem of presumption. It's the problem of presumption. I don't know if that word is familiar to you. It simply means that you presume things that are not in evidence. All right? you, you make assumptions that are not in evidence. You can presume that... God is always going to answer your prayer in the same way. And He's always going to answer your prayer in the same way that He did before at the same time according to the same schedule. And you have some sort of expectation set on previous activity of God so that somehow you become in charge. You presume that God is there to, to answer what you demand to be done rather than God working His own will in His own way. The sins of presumption. Let me see if I can illustrate that. When my dad was a pastor at Gear Memorial Baptist Church in Easley, I was a student first at North Greenville and then at Furman. Not a wealthy student. Uh, as a matter of fact, dad said, here's what I'll do. I'll, I have an account at this gas station in Easley on 123. And you can just pull in there on your way back to school, and I will buy you a full tank of gas so that you have a full tank of gas on your way back to school. You just tell them it's for me and we'll put it on account. I said, that's great. So, buddy, that first Monday I was headed back to school early in the morning and I put gas in the, in the car and, and, and I drove back to school. I don't know how you guys get, how you deal with stress relief. I like to drive. I like to be in the seat of a vehicle, driver's seat of a vehicle, and head down the road. And it was not uncommon for me, after classes were over, when I didn't have anything else to do, to drive the mountains all the way up into western North Carolina. Or to get on the highway and drive down to Atlanta, eat at Waffle House, and turn around and drive back to school. I'm not that weird. People do this, okay? All of that to say, I put a lot of miles on that car. And it took a lot of gas. And the first month that Dad got the bill from the gas station, he called me and said, son, we need to talk. I committed to providing you gas for your needs at school. You seem to be making laps around South Carolina. You are presuming upon my grace. And as a result, you don't get gas at that gas station anymore. What gas you get, you pay for. <laughs> I... I it was fair. I, I used up maybe three months worth of gas in one month. But I want you to understand, we can do the same. We can develop the same attitude with God that somehow we're God. We're in charge. He responds to us rather than us responding to Him. The sin of pride and the sin of pres presumption comes because often our greatest trials follow our greatest victories. But I want you to understand that I don't see a lot of presumption here. We can assume some things from the text. But there's another truth that we need to hold on to 
when we know that we're going to face trials is that these trials are an examination and they are essential for growth. God freed the children of Israel. He freed them out of Egyptian slavery. He brought them into the wilderness. But God was not willing, his, not His plan, to bring slavery and slave, slaves and slavery-minded people into the promised land. He was going to bring His people, inheritors of His kingdom, warriors of His army. And so there had to be some growth. There had to be some training. There had to be some equipping, examination that needed to be done. Examination is essential for growth. Our text tells us that God tested them. The same God who brought them through the Red Sea brought them to the bitterness of Marah. And it was good that he did so because while they were out of Egypt, there was still a lot of Egypt in them. While they were freed from Egypt, they were infants in this relationship. They were learning what it means to be God's people. They were, he was testing so that, that they would know, do they have faith in God? They thought they did. Did they have faith in God after the Red Sea and that song that they just sang in the first part of chapter 15? Oh yes, God is our strength and He is our Savior and we will build a habitation to Him and we enthrone Him and we honor Him and He is God who gives us victory. He is our salvation. He is our Savior. We trust Him. And yet three days later, three days later, the same God who parted the Red Sea could have created a fountain in the wilderness. The same God who, who was dependable at the Red Sea was dependable in the dryness of the wilderness. And yet, their faith was weak. Matter of fact, their faith was gone. They failed the test of faith. How do we know that? Verse 24 says, The people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? I want you to note, they were grumbling against Moses because he was, Moses was right there. They were grumbling against God in the situation that God had put them in. Moses was simply God's representative there. And their grumbling was a demonstrating a lack of faith, a lack of confidence in God. The God who divided the sea can cause water to spring from the ground. They should have called to Him. They should have trusted in Him to keep His promises, the promise that He was taking them to. That was what they celebrated just a couple of verses before. But rather they began to murmur and they began to complain. And by the way, if you want to know where there is a weakness in your Christian life that God is working to refine, what do you complain about? What is it that causes you to grumble? Because I want you to understand, grumbling is a way of life. As a matter of fact, we invite it nowadays. We're like, give us an evaluation. Give us an review. Tell us what's wrong. Tell us, you know, we, we, evaluation review is important. We must be evaluated. We must be tested to know where God is acting strongly on our behalf and where we're trusting Him and where we are weak in our faith, where we need to grow, where we need to develop dependence. You need to know where you are on the map so you'll know where you're going. And so the testing is valid and it's valuable. But it should show us what the next step is, the next direction that we head. And so grumbling is an indicator that here is, a, and muttering is an, is an indicator that here's an area that God needs to work on in my life. And I do want to just point this out quickly, and I'll be quicker, I promise. But grumbling is no small sin. We, we excuse it. We don't think much of it. But when we grumble against something that God, our sovereign God, who works providentially, is doing, what we're telling God is, I know better than you. I don't trust you. Maybe I don't like you, and I don't like what you're doing at this point in time. I, the Israelites failed the test of faith. They weren't faithing God, but they also failed the test of affection of love for God. God, I love you. 
when you part the Red Sea and defeat my enemies. But God, I'm not sure if I love you when I'm thirsty. I'm not sure I love you when it's hot outside and I have no place to go and I can't figure things out on my own. And we need to make sure that when we go through these times of testing that we see them as times of evaluation, that we see them as time of God revealing to us areas that He's working on our life. I believe they failed the test of faith. I believe they failed the test of love. Which leads us to the next point. Tests provide essential experience for maturity. You grow through times of testing. Verse 25, the next verse in our text says, He cried to the Lord. This is Moses crying to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log or a tree. And he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. It is only in the trials that we find our weaknesses and God's grace and God's sufficiency. It is only when we come to the end of ourselves and turn to God that we experience experience firsthand His faithfulness to us. A summary of what happened at Mara is simply it was a place of bitterness and disappointment. The people complained. Moses prayed. God answered. And the bitter became sweet. That's a summary. Here's some things that we need to remember about this. Number one, God works in unexpected ways. If I would have been at Mara, I don't know about you, but I would have said, Moses, that rod you held over the Red Sea, stick it in this little pool and swirl it around. See if God will make the water sweet. And yet, that was not how God chose to work. God will hear your prayer. He will answer your prayer. But He will do things according to the counsel of His own will. And He will move and work in unexpected ways. We have many testimonies in our life of how we had a need and we had a a situation that we were facing a trial, sometimes a very serious trial. And we cried out to God and we prayed and God made provision, and it came out of the blue in a way that we would never have expected or from a person that we would never have expected or in a means that was only by God's grace and by God's wisdom. It is only when we come to the end of ourselves and turn to God that we experience His faithfulness. He does things according to the counsel of His own will. He does things in, a, in, in, in ways that are new and are different, and we like for God to work in predefined predetermined ways that we can count on according to our schedule. We'll pray. Lord, we'll give you 24 hours after we pray. You know God is never late, right? Do you know God is never late? We all know He's never early. But He's never late. According to our time schedule and our time frame, according to our manner and our, our means, God may not answer, but we learn that He's faithful and that He's trustworthy. He's never late. And He's always sufficient. Can I, can I tell you just real quick? This always amazed me. Three days in the wilderness, no water. No record of a single child dying. No infant dying. Three days in the wilderness with no water. No record of a single lamb or an oxen dying from lack of eating. You know what God does? God in His sovereignty will put situations in your life and you're going to say and you're going to think nobody's ever suffered like this before. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Lord, this is impossible. I can't bear it. And God is doing that so that you will come to the point of I can't bear it and you will learn complete and total dependence upon Him. 
He is faithful and he is trustworthy. And he brings us to the end of ourselves so that we can be totally and completely dependent upon him. That's the second observation here. We must cultivate daily dependence upon God alone. They couldn't make the water sweet. Not even Moses could make the water sweet. God did it, and he did it in his own way. I don't know if you guys remember Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary who went from England to China and carried the gospel, permeated a whole continent with the gospel. He had no mission-sending agency. He didn't have an international mission board. He didn't have a, uh, uh, any of these other mission-sending agencies. And there was a woman who was actually testifying and writing on his behalf, trying to create some sort of missionary board to support him. And she said, oh, this poor man has no missionary society with which to provide him resources. He has to depend upon God and God alone. That's hilarious. Do you get the irony? We have no one to depend on but the God who created the universe, the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the God who causes the sun to rise in the morning and to set at night, the God who named the stars. We have no one to depend upon but the God who spoke the world into existence and the God who knows every thought that crosses your mind and the God who promises good. The God who loves justice. The God who is worthy of our glory. We have to learn daily dependence. What a blessed place to be. And these things are only learned through experience. I want us to learn through their experience to the extent we can. But I want you to know you're going to have the experience of trials and testing. And they provide both the essential experience and evaluation and direction. As God conforms you to the image of his son. And so there are some lessons that we can learn. Third point on your outline, if you're following along, I would like for us to learn the life-changing truths that God teaches through testing. And when I was sitting down and looking at the lessons that I, that I saw in this passage, yeah, honestly, there were about 17, and I thought, well, maybe we can handle three time-wise. I'm going to get carried away. So I just want to kind of summarize some of these things if I can. I want to pick up in verse 20. 25, at the end of verse 25, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. There he tested them. Remember, the testing came from God. Verse 26, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear, obediently listening, to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptian. He's referencing the plagues. For I am the Lord. And here, God gives himself a new name, a new identity, something that had, he had not been called or identified himself as before in Scripture. He is Jehovah Rapha or Yahweh Rofi. He is the Lord, your healer. He's the God who heals. He's the God who heals. What are the lessons we learn in testing, first of all? Can I just tell you a couple of things really quick? God knows your heart. He knows it better than you know it. He knows your heart better than you know your heart. We are really good at self-deception. We are so good at self-deception. We tend to think we are better than we are. We tend to think that we look different than we do, sound different than we do, that we are perceived differently than we do. The prophet reminded us of this, and Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The answer to that question is in the following verses. It is God who knows 
our hearts. And what testing does is it, it takes the blinders off. It reveals to us some of what's going on in our own heart. It reveals our lack of faith in specific areas and arenas. It reveals the, the flightiness of our devotion. These Israelites, they were fickle one moment, one day, loving God the next day not. They were fearful, one day trusting God, the next day not. They were fretful, one day praising God, the next day murmuring against God. God knows our needs and what testing does is it reveals them to us so that we can repent, so that we can turn, so that we can trust, so that we recognize we can't put confidence in ourselves. We have to put confidence in God alone. Can I encourage you that you pray, search me, O God, and try me. Search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Make it a consistent prayer. And as you're in the Word of God, the Word of God reveals God's truth and opens our eyes. God knows our hearts, but it's also that God answers prayer. Aren't you glad about this? God answers prayer. When they murmured, did the water become sweet? When they complained, did the water become sweet? When they... Whatever they did and did not do, they could not make the water sweet. They went to Moses, and Moses didn't even respond to their complaints. Moses went on a direct path to prayer, and he prayed, and God answered his prayer. In an unusual way, but God answered his prayer. There's a tree. Pick up the tree. Put it in the water. I will make the water sweet. Moses prayed. The children of Israel learned that their complaining did not accomplish anything, but that the prayer of a man who passed the test of faith And who passed the test of love. God moved. And God worked. It wasn't until Moses prayed that the water became sweet. God answered in his time and his way. Can I I encourage you one other thing? When the trial comes, don't resent it. Embrace it. Seek to have the attitude of Job. Who said, when the Lord giveth, blessed be the name of the Lord. And when the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away in all circumstances. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God answers prayers and God demands and rewards obedience. Now, really quick, I want you to understand that God didn't say, if you will obey me, I will save you from slavery and get you across the Red Sea. But after he got him across the Red Sea, he said, no, I need you to obey me. Obey me because you love me. Obey me because you trust me. Obey me because I'm God and I'm your God and I'm right. And just like that, God calls us to increasing obedience and increasing trust in Him. God didn't want to take a million slaves into the promised land. He wanted to take a million faithful warriors. This was their education and preparation just as certainly as every testing is ours. And we end with this. I am the Lord, your healer. God is totally and completely trustworthy. Now, I want to just mention two things in closing. We get to verse 27. One verse allotted to a little place nine miles across the desert. Nine miles. How fast can you run nine miles? Now some of us are like, about a week for me. But I know some of you can run nine miles in about 45 minutes. Okay? Listen, nine miles down the road... They came to Elam. And in Elam, there were 12 springs of water. How many tribes of Israel? 12 tribes. There were 12 springs of water. 
ample provision for every tribe. There were 70 palm trees. How many elders of the tribes accumulated? There were 70 elders. A palm tree for every elder. A pool of water for every tribe. And there they encamped by the water. Now, I will tell you, I don't think they appreciated that water as much as they did the water at Marah. Do you? It was sweet water at Marah. It's kind of like the difference. Suzanne likes unsweet tea. I like sweet tea. Sweet tea is better. It's sweet water at Marah. Sweet water at Marah. But the water at Elam was good and cool and refreshing. Ample water, ample trees. Can I just give you two things? Trials will last for tonight. But the sun will rise. Trials are temporary. They are periods of testing. And they are periods where God works on us to refine us. Sometimes placing us through fire like gold in order to be refined. Sometimes simply creating daily dependence upon Him so that when we come to the areas of Elam and the times of resting, we get to just be refreshed in the Spirit of God. You may be at Mara. Praise the Lord. God takes bitter water and makes it sweet. You may be at Elam. Enjoy the time of God's provision. Enjoy the time of growth and rest and recuperation because they're still on their way to Sinai. They got further to go and so do you. And there will be more wilderness. And yet there will always be a faithful God. The second thing and the last thing that I want to close with is how do you think they got from Mara to Elam? How do you think they got from Mara, where the water was bitter and became sweet, to Elam, where there was time of refreshing and plenty of water and shade? You know how they got there? They kept going. They kept going. We need to not grow weary in well-doing. We not to be weak, need to not be weakened in our faith. We need to not look at the, the road that lies before us and look at it with discouragement and how overwhelming it is. We need to look at it through the lens of Almighty God who says, I have a place promised for you. Certainly we have an eternal home that has been prepared for us and we will go there and we can always be thankful about that. But I want you to know, He's got plans for you this week and next week and in 2023 and in 2025 and over the next 10 years and over the next 15 years and he will and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and as long as he leaves you here until he comes back and takes you home either he comes back and brings us home or he brings you to himself he's got plans for you and for you to walk in the fullness of God's plan requires daily dependence upon him and a willingness to keep going resting and trusting in him a lot of us Love the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel where the prophets of Baal were defeated and God sent fire from heaven. But keep reading. In a very short period of time, Elijah is despondent, depressed, and fleeing to the wilderness. But keep reading. God meets him in the wilderness and is sufficient for every circumstance and for every need. We can be thankful for the faithfulness of our God. Whether we're in the wilderness, whether the waters are bitter, or when God makes the waters sweet. So our prayer is that God will create in us continual dependence 
and continual gratitude upon him. Father, thank you that you are the God of the Red Sea and deliverance. You're the God who saves. You're the God who rescues and cleanses and forgives. You're the God who washes and who makes us new. You're the God who takes up residence within us, who writes our name in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're the God who promises to never leave us and never forsake us. You're the God who is completely sufficient. You're the God who is not deceived by us, even when we deceive ourselves. You know our hearts. You know them in their completeness, in their entirety. You know our greatest need. You know how you can be your life living in us and through us as we continually turn our attention and our hearts over to you. As we live and walk in dependence upon you. I thank you for the lessons of the Israelites. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to learn from their experience so that when the tests come and when the trials come, we will not fail the test of faith. We will say, God is able. Our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. He is able to do that which is best for His glory, right for your glory and right for our good when we live for your glory. God, refine us. Help us to reflect the character, your character, in a, in a world in which it's largely absent. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.